MasterCard knows local businesses mean more than simply what they sell. DJ Jason Johnson and Eagle Feather Entertainment provide beats and fundraising. He helps indigenous and non-indigenous groups take their weddings and dances to the next level. And he's always there to help elevate his community's fundraisers as well. MasterCard has tools and resources to support small businesses like Jason's. Learn more at mastercard.ca forward slash small business. Together, let's start something priceless. This week, Finance Minister Christian Freeland announced billions of dollars in new stimulus measures to help Canada weather this pandemic and the concurrent economic crisis. I'm Gabe Friedman, host of Down to Business, and as part of an ongoing effort to understand the crisis and the path to recovery, I spoke to Shari Eli, an associate professor in the economics department at the University of Toronto. Eli is an economist who has studied cash transfers from the government. In one of her papers, she looked at a very old welfare program in the U.S. that predated even the Great Depression, in which the government made a cash payment to a wide variety of mothers, women whose husbands had abandoned them, women whose husbands were disabled, widows, and others. By looking at such an old program, Eli, along with her collaborators, were able to see the long-term effect of such cash transfers. They found a profound effect, not necessarily in the mother's lives, but in their children's lives, who earned higher wages in adulthood, attained higher rates of education, and maybe most importantly, actually live longer than similarly situated children whose mothers didn't receive the cash payment. We also talked about government programs that put people to work in exchange for cash and the dignity of work, how this economic recession may wipe out some of the gains women made over the past few decades, and what kind of timeline to expect for this economic recovery. It's so nice to have you on Down to Business. Thank you for having me. I'm very happy to join today. So you're an economist who's looked closely at cash transfers from the government to people. I was wondering if you can tell me about what you found out about people who receive cash transfers from government and and whether these are helpful. Yes. So the question that we were really interested in was, what's the effect of welfare over the very, very long term? And the reason is because a lot of welfare studies actually only have very short follow-ups. So to try and do this work, which is joint with Anna Iser at Brown, Adriana Yaris-Mooney at UCLA, and Joe Ferry at Northwestern, to do this work, we took a really long run picture and we looked at a very old welfare program in the US called the Mother's Pension Program. And this program gave welfare to mothers with young children who were born around 1900 to 1925. And you might think that this population doesn't tell us so much about people who are young today and and what welfare can do for them. But actually, this is a population that we study so that we can observe long-run outcomes like their longevity or their health in late adulthood or uh, their educational attainment or something like wages earned in adulthood. And what we really wanted to know is, are there you know, very, very long-run effects? Does this intervention in childhood do a lot for you? And you know, what we find is that there are pretty profound effects that it does lead to higher rates of educational attainment. It does lead to uh, more income earned in adulthood. And really, most importantly, children who receive welfare actually live more years of life relative to those who are just as poor and in need. So what became really clear in our research in which we 
track individuals over the very, very long run in, in all sorts of administrative records is that welfare actually, these cash transfers have very long standing effects for individuals and that these mothers of, of young children make good decisions with the cash that promote the, the health and well-being of their children. Right. And so you were just talking about welfare to children, but it, but it was to the mothers, if I understand correctly. And and basically you found that people whose mothers received this cash payment from the government just fared a lot better. Is that fair? Yes, that's right. So a couple of things. In most states, the transfer went to widows, but in some states it went to also to women who were divorced or abandoned uh, by their husbands. In other states, it went to women whose husbands were disabled. So it was really an effort to uh, pr- provide aid for children. We also have a, f- a really exciting follow-up study that we just finished in which we look at outcomes for the mothers. So we look to see if the receipt of welfare for women who were accepted to the program leads to different outcomes relative to those who were rejected from the program. And we find that, in fact, most of the effects are for the children. There are very few effects on the mom's Um, in terms of longevity or uh, differences in remarriage between the accepted or the rejected. And so certainly the receipt of welfare caused these mothers to delay marriage for a little bit longer, but it primarily the effects are for children, which is good, which was the, the intent, the original intent of the program. Yeah, it's, it's really fascinating. And this was a program that was even before the Great Depression. And, and of course, it's in the U.S., but I think the Great Depression is an era that a lot of people are familiar with. And, and a lot of people remember the U, in the U.S., there were things like this massive government program that put millions of Americans to work, building infrastructure, planting trees. I, I guess I was wondering if you had any sense about how cash transfers to, say, people who are out of work match up against other government programs that are, that are more about like putting people to work, you know, sort of employing people, I guess is how I would frame it. So our work doesn't directly compare the effects of cash transfer programs versus jobs programs, but we do have new work, and I'm really happy that you asked me about this, on the very long-run effects of jobs programs during the Great Depression. And in particular, we have a paper that looks at the long-run effect of serving in the Civilian Conservation Corps, which was dubbed uh, Roosevelt's Tree Army. So this is 3 million young men and across the U.S. between the ages of 17 and 23 who served in this army-style jobs program in which they undertook all sorts of uh, soil conservation efforts or uh, land preservation efforts all over the country. And what's interesting about this group is that they received cash payments themselves, and some of it was sent home to their family, but it was in exchange for work. So this was a work program. And a lot of the discussion in narrative evidence is really about the dignity of work. And we, were, we really felt that the effects of this program and the results that we were finding were so pertinent to what is happening today with the pandemic, in that there are very high rates of unemployment among youths, and that 
this kind of work program for youths has very long run effects as well on well-being on outcomes like longevity on the probability that you move to an area with lower mortality rates or an area that has higher socioeconomic status and that these these programs are extremely beneficial for poor men one of the results that we found in our work is that a lot of the effects of the Civilian Conservation Corps operate through nutrition. So operate because these men are properly fed, properly cared for, receiving health treatments, sometimes receiving vaccinations that are really needed for uh, long-term health and well-being. So is the idea basically that, you know, there are, there are important benefits you receive from working for a cash transfer from the government? Is that what you're sort of getting at a little? Yes. I mean, again, we can't directly compare a cash transfer program to a jobs program, but certainly there are longstanding health benefits that we're finding from serving in the Civilian Conservation Corps and and from ser- from serving in this jobs program. And, you, you know, when you think about the effects of the pandemic on the economy today, you know, we could certainly imagine the usefulness of a kind of job core for youth today. So you could imagine something like a youth group that could do test and tracing, that could um, help with vaccination efforts, that could help with the promotion of all sorts of public health interventions, that could help provide information to individuals who are in need of aid and who could even distribute food for example, that, you know, this would be beneficial both for the recipients, but also for the youth employees themselves who would really perhaps find validation in these efforts and who would face much less stigma to the extent that they feel it from issues related to unemployment that were certainly true during the Great Depression and are still true today. When, you know, as someone who studies the economic effects of of sort of welfare, what do you think about the government's response in Canada to the the economic crisis we're facing? Are, Are we doing everything we could or do you feel like there's other things we could be talking about? So I think if we take a longer view of history and of what we know about cash transfer programs in developing countries, the issue is that cash transfer programs are pretty easy to implement in that it's easy to write a check. And so I think certainly with regard to how Canada has dealt with the economic fallout of the pandemic, I think Canada has done very well relative to other countries and being really quick to provide aid. I think that in the form of cash transfers and social insurance, so unemployment benefits, I think that with regard to the creation of a jobs program, that's that's much harder and takes more planning. So if you look at information on how Job Corps in the U.S., the federal program in the U.S. is planned, a lot goes into the formulation of that program. And certainly, historically, that's that's been true during the New Deal and programs like the CCC and the WPA. So I think also that universal basic income and the provision of that has really absorbed a lot of the focus of policymakers in recent years. Universal basic income, when you say it's taken a lot of focus up, can you just explain a little bit about what that is and if it's gained currency, maybe in your opinion, why? 
Sure. I think the types of programs that could be implemented in Canada vary, but in essence, the idea is that instead of uh, means testing, instead of deciding who is deserving and who is not, which, you know, there's been long controversy in how you decide who's part of the deserving poor and who is not. Um, the idea behind universal basic income is that you would provide cash transfers to everybody. And so everybody would be entitled to a certain amount per year. Now, the issue is that these programs are extremely expensive. If you think about how much it costs to live in, in Canada, in major cities in Canada, the idea that the government could provide enough money for everybody to live a life of reasonable quality, you know, it's difficult to fathom and, and is quite expensive. And so that's why it's, it's difficult to implement these kinds of programs. But Certainly, they've taken up quite a lot of focus in the media. And I think what we could learn from looking back in history is that there is a stigma, whether it's people perceive it as coming from external forces or whether coming internally, there, there is a desire amongst a large part of the population to work and they find dignity in work. And so this is something that Roosevelt really was cognizant of. And that is really still true when you look at surveys today. And yeah, it's still true today. Yeah, I, I think I take your point overall to be that Canada did a pretty good job in responding on the fly and putting together a payment program that has allowed the economy to bounce back a little bit. I think unemployment has dropped from I think almost 14% at the start of the pandemic to below 9% as of last month. But we are entering a, a second wave of the coronavirus, at least in Ontario and a lot of other parts of Canada. I was a little curious, just sort of broadly speaking, about what you thought about the pace of the current recovery and or how long recoveries can take in situations like this. Yeah, so recoveries can take quite a long time. If we look back and consider the Great Depression, there the recovery took more than a decade and it wasn't until the 1950s where we saw economic measures sort of return to pre-depression levels. Now, certainly we're not in an economic depression at the moment and the recovery has certainly been a good one. There's also a light at the end of the tunnel here in that vaccines are, are going to be made available starting next year. And so conditions are really different. I think similarities are, are in that if we consider certain segments of the population, they might have um, a longer time to recovery. So for example, recently there's been some highlighting in the media of the effects of the pandemic on moms with children who are school age. And this is really important because this population has, over the 20th century, made many, many gains in the labor force. We see labor force participation amongst women in the early 20th century go from you know, very, very low rates all the way up to uh, 70, 80%, you know, by the end of the 20th century. And so wow. what you, what you see now by some reports, and again, more, we still need more data to come in on female labor force participation, 
and associated measures. But by some reports, we're sort of back, moving back into or back to where we were in, in the 1990s with regard to women in the labor force. And that's because the demands of trying to take care of children in, in environments where schools are closed or where work becomes more demanding, even if everybody is home or where school is on Zoom, can really be consume more of women's time, you know, even in, in the modern setting. How much does that concern you, I guess I'll ask? Well, I mean, I should say first, you know, rather optimistically that people fundamentally are very resilient, that I really, I really do believe that. But I think that the the issue is that once women drop out or once workers drop out in general, it can be really difficult to explain gaps on a resume and to explain time off and then to sort of retool enough to be able to join the labor market in a job that was similar to the one that you might have had before the onset of the pandemic and before changes in labor force participation decisions. And that's that's really pertinent. It's just sort of harder to pick back up. You have good evidence in economics that long-standing gaps in employment are difficult to come back from. Now, the other issue that concerns me is changes in the kinds of technologies that become available and changes really in technology that is labor-saving. So technology that replaces labor. And in the pandemic, what we've seen is, is new emergent types of technologies that are making it possible for consumers to carry out all the same activities without having to interact with a person in the shop or a person in another setting. Right. And all of this was happening before uh, the pandemic, but the pandemic has really accelerated this. And so it may be difficult uh, for workers who've been out of the labor force to reenter precisely because um, their job has been replaced by new kinds of technology. And so this is also something that in the short run may keep unemployment at higher levels than we would otherwise like. Yeah. Well, these are really serious issues that sound like ultimately we're going to need some policy to address. I really appreciate you coming on the show and talking to us about your research. Thank you. That was Shari Eli, an associate professor and economist at the University of Toronto. Thanks for listening to this episode of Down to Business and a big thank you to Bryce Hall for music and production, Yudula Hussein for editing, and Pamela Heaven for web support. If you made it this far, consider rating us on your podcast app and sharing an episode with someone you know. I'm your host, Gabe Friedman, and until next week, you can find all your business news at financialpost.com.